Good morning, guys. It's good to see everybody out and uh, see more of more of you, more of more of you. Uh, we're glad we're glad you're here today, and uh, it's been a kind of a freeing weekend, I think. So it's it's so great to see everybody worshiping together and sharing. Uh, today we're going to continue our series in, uh, that we began two weeks ago called Essential Church. And I told you it was kind of burning in me because I would kind of felt frustrated over the last year or so about the way that our uh, culture has been treating the church. And so this is a way to speak back, hopefully encouragement and challenge and talk about why the church is important uh, in this series called Essential Church. But to do that, I want to ask you a question uh, just for your thought. You don't have to answer out loud, but... Uh, would the world miss churches if they no longer existed? Would the world miss churches if they no longer existed? Do we bring value? Do we meet needs? Do we uh, meet, uh, you know, have a purpose out there today? And maybe even more specifically, would Central Kentucky miss Journey Church if we cease to exist? You know, that's kind of a sobering question, and we believe that they would miss us desperately. Uh, we hope that we're adding value and meeting needs and, and taking care of a, a lot of needs in our community and uh, obviously the, especially helping people move on a simple journey toward Jesus. But we think about things and we think, you know, these are good questions to ask as we plan ministries and outreach. Over the last year, a lot of churches have closed. Uh, one reliable organization said that as many as 20% of churches might close in the, the last year or the next year or so. Overall attendance was kind of slipping already. And COVID has created kind of a perfect storm that's driven many people out of their habit of attendance. And so it is definitely a need to kind of recommit uh, to making it a habit because worship is a habit. And if we're not worshiping uh, on site, it's kind of hard to really be a part of things. Uh, a lot of people have joined everything else but not church. And so we're encouraging people to step back into that. And the reality is that many people who were just attending out of habit uh, and haven't really got a, a connection with God, will struggle to get connected again. And that kind of brings us to the question, is the church necessary? Is it worth all of the effort that we have? And we believe that it is, and that we believe the world needs to know that. And, and to be honest with you, I think sometimes the church needs to speak out uh, because our culture doesn't value the church like I believe that it should. In some states, churches were in the same reop reopening category as nail salons and gyms and movie theaters. Uh, or maybe they were lumped in with entertainment options. Uh, good for people who like that sort of thing, but not really essential to, for our culture and not worth the health risk, some might say there. It's kind of telling that our society has decided that we can't live without essential things like liquor stores and mar marijuana dispensaries and golf courses, but that we can live without uh, physical church gatherings. And it's also kind of sad, I think, when we think that many Christians uh, quickly abandon worship with little pushback. You know, this time it was a health issue, and we asked the question, what if next time it's, it's what may be considered to be good for our public, good for the public, but it doesn't have anything to do with health? Maybe it has to do with the message that we have. So um, I encourage you to think about that and, and to be challenged by that. But today we're going to be ask, uh, talking about the church down through time. Two weeks ago uh, we asked hard questions about um, the essential part of the church, kind of like I was just addressing. Uh, last week we talked about the birth of the church. Today we're going to talk about the history of the church. And I'm kind of excited about this because I think it's important to know how we got to where we are and to see God's hand moving down through time. You know, we're going to talk about a, a theory that says God doesn't care, not involved in our world, but I can't imagine that would be true based on how God has brought the church to where it is today. 
So let's talk a little bit about that. God's always wanted to have a family, a connection to man. He created the earth and mankind. He had a great relationship with man and woman until it was broken by sin. We know that. And then God repaired that by promising that there would be a redeemer who would save us from our sin. Later on, God called a man named Abraham to be the father of a chosen people, the Jewish nation. And unfortunately, down through history, they have, for the most part, uh, abandoned him and left him and not recognized him as God, nor his son Jesus as Messiah. But God had an original plan that, that continued to be developed down through time, and that is that his family would be opened up to all people, anyone who wanted to be a part of it. In fact, he said, whosoever will. And God's not willing anyone be lost, but everyone to come to repentance. So God has an open plan and open invitation to everyone. And God sent Jesus to the earth to teach of this kingdom. He called it to give his life to save mankind, to gather the beginnings of his followers who would then carry on his mission and work when he went back into heaven. And in Matthew chapter 16, we read this a couple of weeks ago, Jesus said, my intention is I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. As we look down through time, we see that that prophecy has certainly come true. And last week, as we spent some time about the actual beginnings of the church, how the church was born, early growth, today I want to talk about what happened to the church and in the church after Bible times. We read through the book of Acts and the rapid growth of the church, but what happened after that, and how did we get to the church to where it is today? So let's kind of talk about that. Now, of course, after Jesus had been resurrected, gone back into heaven, the Jewish leaders who had killed Jesus, they still opposed the church. They thought that if they cut off the head of the body, the body would die. But we know in reality that Jesus came to life and went back into heaven, and then the church began after that, 10 days after his ascension. And so they still opposed the church violently. This young church, as it was just getting started, they, the Jewish leaders tried to tamp it down, and they publicly interrupted the apostles when they would be preaching. They would interfere with their evangelistic efforts. They would tell them to stop preaching the gospel. They would arrest them whenever they had authority to do so. They would encourage the Roman government, whom they hated as well, to crack down on the church. Did everything to harass and to keep the church from, from growing and moving forward. And then there were waves of persecution, like the one that came and that led to Stephen's death, the first martyr for the faith in Acts chapter 6. And and there was a lot of persecution. And then things lightened up. So it would be persecution, then kind of waves of freedom again. But persecution always makes the church stronger. It's an amazing thing and not one that we're comfortable with. But when, people, when the church is persecuted, the church seems to gather strength and push back against it. And so it's not always a bad thing, uh, even though we don't really want that to, to, to have to experience that. But the church continued to grow as believers left Jerusalem, which was the epicenter of Christianity. They left Jerusalem, they began to spread all over the world to escape persecution, and they took the gospel with them. We also read in Acts about a man named Saul who was a Jewish fanatic who made it his mission in life to hunt down, to arrest, to torture, and kill every Christian he could find until God turned the tables on Saul. God struck him blind. He was uh, taught the gospel and he was converted to Christianity. And then he worked with as much zeal for the Lord, for Jesus, as he had worked against him. So God has a way of intervening in his special times uh, to do what his will might be. But you know, the greatest threat to the church never comes from the outside. This is an important lesson for us today because the greatest threat to the church is never going to be from the external, external, but instead from inside the church. 
And we see that already in the book of Acts. It happens very quickly there. It didn't take long for two doctrines uh, or two, two problems to pop up. One of them was apostasy. Apostasy is abandoning the faith. That is, you know what is right, but you choose not to do it. A falling away from the faith. And so there was apostasy in the church. Paul talks about, sadly, losing one of his protégés who lost his first love. The Bible speaks of that. And then there was another problem, and that was heresy. Heresy are teachings that are contrary to Christian faith, uh, and these things begin to arise among the young church. So there was a falling away internally, and then there was a heresy, false doctrines being taught. For example, there was a group called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were Jewish Christians who had given their life to Christ, but they were resentful for the Gentiles who were starting to become believers. And so they demanded that everyone become a Jew before they uh, become a Christian. So they were commanding them to do the Jewish laws and customs and, you know, uh, ceremonies that you had to do to be a Jew. And the, the disciples uh, had to uh, deal with that in Jerusalem. They had to say, no, you don't have to be a Jew to be a, Christ, uh, to be a Christian. Anyone can. And God raised up leaders like the Apostle Paul to confront them, this sin, and to, to reinforce true doctrine. See, God always wants the church to be pure and focused on the basic doctrine of justification by faith. We are not saved by works. We're not saved by anything that we can do, but only by our faith in Jesus Christ. And then they emphasize the importance of passing this down, that every generation has to continue to um, keep the truth, keep the faith, and then pass it down to the next. In 2 Timothy 2, And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So the church is responsible not just to hold the line in its, its generation, but to continue to teach subsequent generations as well so that the true doctrine is continually held. Now, upholding the gospel, though, was not without cost. Again, there was persecution of the Jewish leaders on the outside and the Judaizers inside, and then you had the, the government that stepped in. King Herod began actively persecuting Christians. In fact, all of the apostles and many others were arrested, and many of them were tortured to death. In fact, all of the 12 apostles, with the exception of John, died a martyr's death. And John was boiled in oil. They were very creative and very sadistic in how they tortured people. They would tear them apart with horses. They would uh, wrap them up in skins. They would rip them uh, you know, limb from limb. There were all sorts of ways that they would, would make Christians suffer if they refused to uh, recant their faith. John, the only one who, um, who wasn't martyred, uh, was boiled in oil, but he died a natural death. And so by the end of the first century, they had been through a great deal, but Christianity, uh, and of course the gospel, had spread throughout most of the Roman Empire and had come to Rome itself, which at this point was the center of the world. And there were several seasons of persecution, but the church continued to spread. And then the church, having survived external threats, began to be experience some new threats to its purity and growth from within once again. And this is where the church kind of got off track for several years. And let me just say this, I don't know what your background is or anything, but some of the things we're going to talk about can be painful a little bit, but all this is very well documented because when the church loses its perspective, it begins to man's worst um, assumptions happen. And uh, so we're going to talk about some things that were pretty painful that the church went through. The first thing internally at this point was that bishops began to assume authority over large groups of churches. 
you know, the, the, the disciples clarified that the church in Jerusalem was not the headquarter church, that every church had to be founded individually and independently and, uh, and have the word of God as their center. But after a while, bishops began to gather churches under them, getting control, weakening scriptural leadership and eldership and local church independence. And then the baptism of infants began to take place instead of the baptism of believers. Power began to be uh, consolidated in Rome, the center of government. And then there was a theology called Catholicism that was uh, basically one authoritative, humanly divine church institution to which every church must submit. And that became very common and became accepted. And the clergy, the preachers, were the one responsible for all this because they corruptly sought power and control over the church. At that point, many of the clergy, they took advantage of the people, doing things like selling church offices to the highest bidder or selling indulgences, which were basically prepaid sins, uh, people seeking forgiveness of the sins that they might commit down the road. And they used these indulgences to build great cathedrals and to build up their own wealth. They installed unqualified clergy and many other things that led to the corruption of the church. Extra biblical creeds were established. The Bible was no longer considered to be sufficient for the guidance of churches. And man's opinion was put on the same level and valued as inspired as the Bible is. And for several centuries, Catholicism was the most visible presence of the church. When people thought of the church, that's what it was. That was the most visible sign. But there was always a faithful remnant of Christianity that continued to, to survive, even through all of these centuries of corruption. We call the Middle Ages the Dark Ages because they were dark ages for the church. Church leaders raised up, men like Clement of Rome and Tertullian and Montemus, who called the church back to repentance and apostolic practice. But the Roman church had gained a lot of ecclesiastical power and governmental power, and it branded people as heretics, and it persecuted them and even killed those who dared to oppose them. It would be sad to say that the church would kill people who disagreed with them and who spoke out against that, but that's exactly what happened for some time. There's a book called Fox's Book of Martyr that describes how so many Christian people died trying to maintain and uphold the faith. So for many centuries, the true remnant struggled to survive, but God protected them. And then in about the 1300s, God began to move to correct his church. God began to raise up more leaders within the, the, the Catholic church who called the church to repentance. People like John Wycliffe, who began translating the Bible into the language of the common people. So everybody could read it. If you don't have the knowledge, you don't have access to the truth, it's hard to know what it is. You have to believe whatever you're told. And so as the Bible was written or translated into a language that people could understand, their own native language, they began to realize what the Bible had to say. And there were many, many others. Many were tortured. Many were burned at the stake for their efforts to, uh, to, to, to change the church. But the truth was getting out aided in, in, in a big way by the invention of a, a, a tool called the printing press. And the printing press began to print Bibles. That was the first Bible on the printing press, the Gutenberg Bible. And it was printed, and then more Bibles were, and the Word began to get out in the common language, in common hands, and people began to read the Bible for themselves. And there's nothing like ignorance to keep us contained and limited. And so people knew the Bible, they began to see the truth. And then God raised up a spiritual Moses to deliver his people from bondage. His name was Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a priest 
in the Catholic Church who translated the Bible into English. And he famously nailed 95 theses or objections to the church, the Catholic Church, to his church door. You can imagine how that went over. Uh, not too well, I would say, when you're opposing the church and you're nailing it to the door and people were able to read it in their own language and, and see what was going on. Luther taught that salvation and consequently eternal life are not earned by good deeds. They're not bought by money, but they're received only as the free gift of God's grave through the believer's faith in Jesus Christ. And his theology challenged the authority uh, and office of the church and of the pope, who was the most powerful person in the world at the time, by teaching that, that the Bible is the only source of divinely inspired and revealed knowledge. Now, you can imagine Luther was not well received by the church. In fact, he was branded an outlaw, he was excommunicated, and he was kicked out of the church. It's fortunate that he wasn't put to death. It was probably because he was such a public figure that, that he wasn't. But this was the beginning of the Reformation movement, and the, uh, the revealed, the corruption of the church was revealed, and things began to change. The struggle continued, but as people began reading the Bible, continued reading the Bible, they began to conform to the biblical pattern, breaking with the state church, state-ordained church, and starting independent New Testament churches that were truly independent, that had their own local elders as leaders, baptizing believers by immersion every Sunday observance of the Lord's Supper. And this movement didn't just take place in a vacuum. It took place in a lot of, other, a lot of countries like England, France, Italy, Ireland, Hungary, Germany, Switzerland, Scotland, and also a new country that had just started called the United States of America. You know, many of the mainline denominations came from the Reformation movement. Lutherans, named after Martin Luther, obviously, the Methodist, John Wesley, Episcopalian, Baptist, Presbyterian. The main denominations began during that period. So if you would see a flow chart, you would see after the Reformation movement, all these different denominations coming into existence. However, unfortunately, along with many of those denominations came creeds or statements of faith that oftentimes deviated from the Scripture. Many of those denominations came from and were even named after the, the men who never intended to start a denomination. It wasn't ever their plan to do that, but their followers began to call themselves after that person or some methodology that they might have. And so by the late 1700s here in the U.S., America, which had been clearly founded on faith in God and religious freedom, they wanted to get away from the state church in England, where the state did not have control over the church. They began that way, but by the 1700s, there was a dark period of time spiritually and morally for our country. The American Revolution had just been fought, and it was really hard on the country, and churches were struggling. There, there were two problems, two doctrines, or two heresies, that came out that hurt the church. One of them was universalism. Universalism is a belief that everyone will be saved. You know, that's not an old doctrine. It's still a current doctrine. People believe that today, right? And you'll be saved. If everybody's going to be saved, then, you know, what good is the church, right? The other one is deism. And deism is the belief that God is not involved in the world, that God doesn't have a hand. Maybe that the darkness of the uh, uh, American Revolution had had caused some of this, but at any rate, those two things became very popular, and there was a lot of religious indifference, and many people were ready to give up on the church. But in the midst of these dark and discouraging days, God stepped in and moved. Never count God out. Never underestimate God's power to step in in dark times. He always does. He brought the Reformation. 
God stepped in again, and this time here in America came what was called the Great Revival. The Great Revival of 1800 through 1860. So in that period of time, there were a lot of different revivals that broke out. You know, some in the city, some in rural areas, this broke out. And this revival, like all revivals, was preceded by focused prayer. Remember, whenever the Holy Spirit came and the church began, it was, it was preceded by 10 days of focused prayer. And so what, every church in America was called upon to pray for revival and the gospel to be advanced. And revival came as a result of that prayer. And it began in an unusual place. The revival began in colleges. Now, the colleges like Yale and Harvard had actually been, had started, been started as Christian colleges, but they had turned their back on God. They had abandoned God. And now the revival broke out in them. Isn't it interesting how history cycles? Because we see the same thing again. We see an indifference. We see a universalism. We see a belief God isn't involved in the world. We see our colleges have gotten away from God. The time is ripe for a revival. Time is ripe for that. Now, this was up in the East Coast. Further west, the revival started in an awesome place called Kentucky. This revival began right here and then spread into Tennessee, Ohio, Virginia, and North Carolina. And the largest and the very best known meeting of this revival actually happened just north of us a few miles up in uh, uh, Bourbon County, uh, just north of Paris, a place called Cane Ridge, which, by the way, still exists. They still have the campgrounds there. They still have the original church. Uh, it's a pretty cool place to go have a picnic sometime if you're ever going to go up there and, and, and see what's going on. It's, it's, it's really pretty unique. But uh, the minister there was a man named Barton W. Stone. And Barton W. Stone had been to other revival meetings, and he was praying for revival in his own church. And so he invited people to came. He uh, started a series of meetings, invited other churches to join. And soon it grew to as many as twenty or 30,000 people. Now, that's a lot of people today, but in that day, it, it was amazing. Some said it was as much as 10% of Kentucky's entire population came down to that from far away, not just Kentucky, other states as well. Roads were clogged for miles with horses and buggies trying to get in there. People walked for miles to attend. And they invited everybody, ministers from all denominations, Methodists, Presbyterians, Baptist backgrounds. Everybody came and participated. I'm sure it was organized chaos. Now, here's what's amazing is, is what happened there during that time. Now, none of these churches were charismatic. None of them were. None of these denominational churches are thought to be uh, charismatic at all. However, the Holy Spirit showed up, and things got pretty exciting, and the Holy Spirit became evident. Here's what some of the uh, historians write about people who were there. They said, sinners dropping down on every hand, shrieking, groaning, crying for mercy, convoluted, Professors, not teachers, but believers, those who profess Christ, were praying and agonizing and fainting and falling down in distress for sinners or in raptures of joy. Some were singing, some shouting, clapping their hands, hugging and kissing, laughing, others talking to the distressed, to one another, to opposers of the work, and all this at once. And in his autobiography, Barton W. Stone, who was a very serious and uh, is taken very seriously in this book, he describes some of this, and he describes what was the most unusual thing. He calls them bodily, body exercises. He said there were people falling on the ground, out cold, dancing, uh, barking, laughing, and singing. 
But he said the most unusual thing that happened was what he called jerking. He would describe as someone who would be standing and would jerk forward and backward until their head would touch the ground in front of them and behind them, their hair snapping like a whip. I mean, that would blow us away, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that kind of just like, I don't know about that, right? But that was well recorded that happened there. This revival lasted for a week. When you can imagine what happened, all the food was eaten up everywhere. All the supplies were gone with thousands of people, and people had to go home. But they took with them what they had experienced, a revived spirit. And the impact of the revival lasted a long time and continued to sweep across the country. In 1807, a man named Thomas Campbell came to America from Ireland. Thomas Campbell had been experiencing the same thoughts and prayers for revival himself. A little bit later on, his son Alexander came and joined him, and they began preaching with passion. They had been ordained in a Presbyterian denomination, but their new ideas put them at odds with their church, especially the practice of baptism by immersion of a repentant believer. And soon they fell in with Barton W. Stone. The Campbells and the Stone came together to lead their denominations and to be Christians only. Christians only. Let me, I told you before that there's some painful things that we learn through this. And, and we see that the church realizes we're not where we ought to be. We think things should be more like the Bible teaches. So let's try to get there. Let's try to get to that point. They acknowledged the Reformation movement had reformed many of the corruptions of the past church, but they had not gone far enough. Now is time, they believe, to restore the church to what it had been in the New Testament. We have the perfect example in the Bible of what the church should be. And so there was a movement called the Restoration Movement. And this is the heritage that we follow today. It was and is a call to leave everything and be Christians only. Now let me just say this. Again, I tried to say, couch this, some of it's painful. But there was a call to say that the church can easily get off track can easily get off track in its hierarchy. It can get off track in denominationalism and begin following man's opinions when we have a pattern, the Bible, that we ought to follow. And so the restoration movement has been characterized by several key principles. First of all, that Christianity should not be divided. They lamented the fact that the church was divided. Christ intended for there to be one church. And there was a plea and a call for that. Uh, acknowledging that creeds divide but Christians should be able to find agreement by standing on the Bible itself. That ecclesiastical traditions divide us. But Christians should be able to find common ground by following the practice of the early church as best as we can determine. That names of human origin divide, but Christians should be able to find common ground by using histor uh, Bible names for the church, like Christian Church and Church of God or the Church of Christ as opposed to other denominational names. So there was kind of a, it was kind of a call to say, let's see that we, what we should be and who we should be and what we should call ourselves. And so the church uh, should stress only what all Christians hold in common and should suppress all divisive doctrines and practices. And so from that came what is called the Restoration Movement. And there's several slogans that help define or express some of the themes of the movement. And these include statements like, where the scriptures speak, we speak. Where the scriptures are silent, we are silent. Let's don't make stuff up because we believe that. Let's just let the Bible speak. Another statement, the church of Jesus Christ on earth is essentially, intentionally, and constitutionally one. This was a unity movement. It was not trying to cause division, but to draw people together and find common cause and common purpose in the word of God. 
Here's another, we are Christians only, but we are not the only Christians. I really like that because it, it's not critical of everybody else. It says we just want to be Christians. We, we invite everybody to, but we're not going to be critical of people who may be in some other denomination or some other area. I love this one, in essentials, unity, in opinions, liberty, in all things, love. When we find what the Bible says, let's just center and focus on that. If we, don't, if we have opinions about something, if it's great, let's have freedom and liberty, but let's love each other no matter what. Another was no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible, no law but love, no name but the divine. And then do Bible things in Bible ways and call Bible things by Bible names. You know, I love those principles, I really do, and those slogans. And I believe that the church is always in a constant process of being restored. I don't think that we've arrived. I don't think that we've got everything figured out and everybody else is wrong. I don't believe that. But our hope is just to be the churches in the Bible. We're not there. But if we seek God and we study His Word and serve Him, we continue to grow and move. And I'm really proud to be a part of that heritage. I'm proud to be able to look back over time and, and see what has happened. I think back through the years of, of, of the church and the sacrifice of life and the struggle of the church to survive in difficult times. I think about the courage it took for men like Peter and John to stand up uh, to Jewish authorities, and they said, stop preaching, and they said, We're gonna, we have to obey God rather than men. I think about how much courage it took to stand before the government knowing that they could, they could sentence you to death or throw you to the lions. How much courage it took to stand before church hierarchy and the overall commitment that believers have made over the last 2,000 years. And when I look at that, I think, you know, Jesus was exactly right. He would build his church and the gates of Hades externally and internally, man's opinions, they would not overcome the church. The church has stood. When the Jewish leaders uh, and the Roman government tried to quench it, the church survived. When church officials tried to make it their own kingdom, the church survived. Whenever the world seemed to overwhelm it with sin and darkness, and those who claimed to be Christian were indifferent and odds with the Bible, the church shook all of that off, and the church survived. And that gives me hope to know that this is not man's institution. This is not our kingdom. This is, this is not my church. This is not your church. This is God's church, and it will survive. It will overcome everything. And we need to have that kind of hope today. The church is the vehicle through which people come to know Jesus Christ, and it will survive. Will we be blessed to be a part of it and to be faithful? That's the greater question. Now, let me give you a little bit of our history real quick to see how we fit in this. Journey Church is a church from the Restoration Movement heritage. The church was started, the roots of our church were started in the mid-60s uh, by the Bluegrass Christian Men's Fellowship, a local Central Kentucky organization they wanted to plant an independent Christian church in every major town in the, or every county seat, I guess, in the state of, of Kentucky or central Kentucky. And so uh, the church was planted in the mid-70s. What's really cool is that one of the ministers, uh, the first full-time minister they had, his name was Brother Joe Bob Greider, was in our first service this morning, uh, which is really cool. In 1973, he was a minister of that church. He's a young man even today. Uh, but, uh, but he, was, he, they, they, he and his wife worshiped with us here at the church, and they still love the church. But that was back in the 70s. Through the 80s, the church continued to grow, and they brought this property that we're setting on in the early 90s. Uh, and then the church went through dark times, you know. It went through difficult times. There were two splits in the 90s, early 90s. But in the late 90s, we brought two of those churches back together, uh, the mother church and another church. And 
brought them back together in unity. And then once that was settled, we built here on this property in 2003 and moved here. And so we are a New Testament church seeking to live out the teachings and the practices of the early church in a modern world. And that's kind of what the restoration movement's all about. Our mission as a church is to move people on a simple journey toward Jesus. That's what God has called us to do. And you know what? God has called us to come together. God has always wanted to have a family, and he's always wanted and invited people to come and join that family. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, we're all invited to be a part of his family, the church. The church is essential because it is God's family, and it always will be a need for it. Listen to what it says in Ephesians 2 as I wrap up. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. is that a beautiful picture? To say that God had this plan in mind, the blueprint, and God designed it. And, and there were prophets and apostles that were a part of the foundation. Jesus was a counter, cornerstone. We sang about that a few moments ago. And everything was centered and built on Jesus. And the whole building is joined together. And we're a part of that. And collectively, we're a temple that is given up to God in worship to him. I want you to see the value of the church and love it like Jesus did. He died for it, but he invites you to be a part of that.